So the, the biggest challenge that I want to talk about is, uh, you know, I think in terms of inflammation and the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 facts, we're, I think as a profession, we're just really confused. It's, it's a difficult concept to explain. And I think we still have a lot of research to do. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven. Today in episode number 14, I'll be sharing with you a talk from our Football Performance Nutrition Summit last year with Peter Ritz of Northwestern Football on applications of omega-3 in athletes and assessing omega-3 index. Peter has served as the advanced clinical dietitian for Northwestern University football since 2020. He has spent the last 10 years working in various capacities in college football, including time with Texas A&M, Exos, University of Florida, and Virginia Tech. Peter is a registered dietitian and board-certified specialist in sports dietetics. He's also been an active member in the Collegiate and Professional Sports Dietitians Association, CPSDA, winning the 2018-2019 Research Award for his work on omega-3 status in college athletes. Always great to connect with Peter and get his insights from his time spent working on the ground in college football. So please enjoy this talk with Peter Ritz on omega-3 and athletes. I wanna talk a little bit about, um, you know, the science behind this stuff, but then also spend some time kind of talking practical application. Um, I know that, that that's something that um, I probably haven't spent quite as much time talking about in the past. Um, just to give you guys some background, I think this is really important um, when you're, you're learning about a speaker, just to get a better idea of where their head's at. Um, from my perspective, um, I'm a really data-driven person, and I think, You'll see that a lot in the presentation today. Um, in terms of you know my experience and kind of how I got here, um, I, I started at Texas A&M in 2011 as a, an undergrad student um, where I spent about three years working for the A&M program. Um, and I've really gotten to witness you know the growth of the sports nutrition field in the college sector. Um, at that time, it was a lot of food service, um, but I also got to see some really cool things as we transitioned out of deregulation in the college setting. Um, so seeing a lot more food being provided by institutions and even that concept that, um, you know, these laws could, the legislations around food could change. And I, I think that was a really important perspective at the time. Um, after finishing up a couple internships and completing my dietetic internship, um, my first full-time role I did at um, Virginia Tech, um, where I was a, a graduate assistant. And there for me, it was really learning um, how to build athlete and coach relationships. And then it was also my first stab at, at research, um, which is a big part of my role now um, at Northwestern, um, which is where I'm currently at. Um, and here, I think the biggest change for me has been that team approach. Um, we have seven dietitians on staff at the moment. Um, and that allows me to, to really work on areas um, where I'm strongest, but also lean on some other dietitians, which is why we're able to do a lot of the cool research that we do. Um, in terms of omega-3 science, I, I think it's really easy to get bogged down in this stuff. And so I'm going to kind of breeze through it, but I want to make sure that uh, we briefly go over some of the basics here. Um, the, the three main omega-3 fats that we spend time talking about are ALA, EPA, and DHA. Um, and there are a couple bit, there are a couple more um, in the research, but we don't spend quite as much time talking about those. 
Um, ALA is a plant-based um, polyunsaturated fat, which means that all the food sources are going to be derived from plant sources like nuts and seeds. Um, and it's also a short chain fatty acid. So it's a little bit um, shorter than the, the other two we're gonna talk about. Um, in terms of function, um, the two things I wanna really emphasize here are its role as an energy source and that it's also a building block for those longer chains. Um, we can convert a little bit of ALA um, to EPA and DHA, but over time that conversion um, has changed because of our ability to um, synthesize Delta-6 desaturase. Um, so kind of through our evolution, that's changed a little bit. And so nowadays it's really important that we emphasize those long chain and the, getting both the long chain and the short chain sources um, because they serve different roles and um, we have to get them through distinct food groups. Um, EPA and DHA are both marine-based, meaning they come from um, seafood and fish sources. Um, the majority of the time, we can also get some through algae and sources like that. And we'll talk a little bit about um, supplements and how that kind of comes into play. Um, and the big thing that I wanna make sure that we stress here is that most of the functions that are associated with these long chain fatty acids come from um, their role as part of the um, cell membrane um, phospholipid bilayer. Um, and, and so really the main concept here is that um, the structure of that cell and, and omega-3 playing a role there is gonna influence the function of that cell. Um, and that's gonna apply to all the different areas that we talk about today. Um, one of my biggest challenges as a master's student when I was looking at doing research in this setting was the fact that it's really hard to benchmark. Um, we have quite a few different dietary recommendations out there and they don't all align with each other. Um, the big two that I really want to emphasize today are the Academy's 500 milligrams of EPA and DHA daily. Um, and then the American Heart Association's two fish meals per week recommendation. Um, it's important to note that we really don't have a great sense of uh, an athlete specific recommendation or um, recommended intake yet. Um, because we haven't done enough research on performance and health metrics to really establish that. Um, and we'll talk about how we kind of translate some of the current research to athletes um, and some of the work that we need to do to kind of bridge that gap. Um, the, the main metric we want to talk about today is how we can actually look at this within um, blood. And uh, the most common metric we're going to hear about is the omega-3 index. Um, and by definition, this is the sum of EPA and DHA within that um, phospholipid membrane, or the, it's the percent of total um, erythrocyte fatty acids. So within that red blood cell, how much of the fat is um, coming from EPA and DHA? Um, the scoring table that we have at the moment, some of those benchmarks um, between zero and four, some of our, we've, they've looked at some large scale cardiovascular um, at analyses, and, and it looks like the highest risk of cardiovascular disease and um, all-cause mortality and some events related to heart health come in that zero to four range. Um, and then four to eight seems to be kind of our moderate risk category. And then finally, 8% um, or greater is our least risk of cardiovascular disease event. Um, so why would we use this metric? Um, it, it's very convenient. We'll talk a little bit about that sample, but it's a really small sample. It's a finger stick. Um, so think kind of diabetes and, and just getting that single drop is usually enough to get a test. Um, we're also able to look at things a little bit longer term. Um, 
I usually, I like to use the analogy of um, blood glucose versus hemoglobin A1C. Um, in the same sense, we have, you know, you'll see some studies that look at plasma versus the omega-3 index. And it's really important that we put those in context. Um, plasma is going to be relatively short-term, um, whereas omega-3 is going to be a little bit longer term. Um, that means that those effects also aren't, the results aren't going to be altered by um, being in the fed state. So if we eat fish this morning and then take a test this afternoon, that's not going to impact um, our test. We would have the same score before or after eating that meal. And then finally, um, the omega-3 index also correlates with um, the content or concentration of omega-3 fats in a variety of tissues. Um, so it's a good way for us to uh, get a better idea of how much omega-3 we have in some of those tissues like the heart and muscle that we're interested in um, trying to get some benefits from. Um, globally, this is a really interesting paper that um, essentially looks at research all across the world to figure out where we might be in terms of average omega-3 index. Um, it's relatively difficult, um, or it seems to be, to get to that 8% um, based on our current kind of dietary trends and, and patterns that we see across the globe. Um, the average in the US is around four to five. Um, and so I guess my next question was, are college athletes getting enough? Um, and so as a, as a graduate assistant at Virginia Tech, um, that curiosity turned into a master's project. Um, at the time, um, there were some constraints in the NCAA around providing omega-3 supplements. Um, fish oil was essentially an impermissible product, which meant that the university couldn't provide um, that supplement to the athlete, but they could buy it on their own. Um, the only way around that would be a physician prescription. Um, and so kind of the inspiration for this project was getting a better idea of where our current constraints um, were they okay? Did we have enough resources to keep our athletes healthy? Or could we potentially change that rule and provide some extra health benefits and um, support college athlete health and performance um, if we were able to make that change? So we ended up um, partnering with nine schools across the US, all Power Five programs, and we did a diet analysis and a blood assessment using a food frequency questionnaire and then that omega 3 index test. And uh, this picture up here is actually me doing one of those finger stick tests. Um, we did this across 34 different sports and um, we were essentially half male, half female. So it was a really um, nice sample to be able to look at kind of across the US and get a better concept of where we were at an NCAA level. Um, in college athletes, what we found, and this is a combination of my research and some other projects out there, um, the average omega-3 index for power five athletes tends to be in that four to five range. And I would say that um, by my practice and, and, you know, the athletes that we've measured at Northwestern, this continues to hold true for about everyone that comes into our program. Um, in terms of dietary intake, I would say that most studies are showing that athletes are getting less than 100 milligrams of EPA and DHA per day. And um, ALA is a little bit harder to predict just because of the way that food frequency questionnaires work. Um, but in our project, we found that they were getting about 500 milligrams. So definitely room for improvement in both areas. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about some interesting nuances to my project, but the two main takeaways for me were that athlete intake is generally low. 
Um, we had 39% that achieved that two fish and seafood meals per week um, recommendation. 45% reported eating no fish at all in the last six months. And only 6% that participated achieved that 500 milligrams of EPA and DHA per day recommendation. Um, based on that impermissibility category at the time, um, supplement interventions also didn't seem to be very effective. We had about 15% of participants that were reporting using a product and less than 10% of those knew the brand or the dose of the product they were taking, which is kind of scary to think about. Um, and then finally, you know, you would hope that in supplement, in supplementers, you would see a higher omega-3 index. Um, and it was a little bit higher, but still very far from that 8% mark. Um, so probably not doing what we were hoping it would do. Even if we recommended that supplement to an athlete, they go out and buy a product, um, maybe not knowing how to take it or how much to take. And um, I think that really just helped us demonstrate some of the challenges around where we were. Um, thankfully, that rule has changed. And so we're able to do a little bit more in the college setting um, in relation to this. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the presentation. Um, the four main areas that you'll hear people talk about when it comes to omega-3 and um, American football or that concept of the um, inflammatory response to exercise, um, brain health, cardiovascular health, and there's also some interesting applications in muscle protein synthesis specific to injury nutrition. Um, so the, the biggest challenge that I wanna talk about is, uh, you know, I think in terms of inflammation and the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 facts, um, you know, we're, I think as a profession, we're just really confused. It's, it's a difficult concept to explain. And I think we still have a lot of research to do. Um, you know, we'll hear about this concept of fighting inflammation or, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there talking about how terrible seed oils that are rich in omega-6 um, might be for the body. And I think there's just a lot of confusion there when it comes to what these fats actually do. Um, so both classes are actually essential fatty acids, which means that we need both in the diet um, in order to be healthy and, and really optimize health. Um, but unfortunately, over about the last 40 to 50 years, um, there's been a lot of changes in, in our food supply. And um, because of that, omega-6 fats are just significantly easier to obtain in the diet. Um, when we look at that shift to convenience, um, that means that we've really had to emphasize shelf stability, which means that we have to look at those fats and, and what's going to be able to sit on a shelf and not expire quickly. And um, omega-6 fats definitely lead to um, some advantages there. Um, so if we look at the rise of soybean and canola oil and things like that, um, we've seen omega-6 intake really explode over the last, I would say, 50 years. Um, on top of that, if we just look at you know, some of the food sources of omega-6 fats, they're everywhere. Um, and they're relatively common in the diet. So we're looking at, you know, chicken, eggs, nuts and seeds, um, on top of those oils that we've already talked about. Um, and then on top of that, there's some just big challenges around, you know, getting omega-3 in. Um, you know, if you're a picky eater and you don't like fish or seafood, that in itself um, can cause some major issues. You just don't have any options. Um, cost is also a big a big impact um, looking at, you know, how expensive some of these, these uh, food sources can be. And then on top of that, something that has been really interesting to me the last couple of years, the omega-3 content of those fish and seafood sources can really vary widely. Um, 
looking at obviously different species, salmon versus tuna versus herring or um, whatever, but also the environment and um, some of the farming practices involved on top of the life cycle of the fish. Um, so there's some really interesting happen things that are happening within um, fish and seafood physiology that change the, the actual in the amount of content of EPA and DHA within those tissues, which we end up eating. Um, so I think there's some really interesting applications here when it comes to supplements. You know, we talk a lot about food first, but um, this might be a situation in which omega-3 supplements actually offer some benefits or advantages over food. And I think that's um, something worth talking about. Um, again, talking about that inflammation concept, you know, you'll see a lot on social media, this concept of, you know, drink this or eat this to fight inflammation. And um, I'm not sure exactly how we got there. Uh, inflammation is an essential process. Um, now, what it comes down to is really being able to optimize that process. Um, but we need the inflammatory response to be able to react to some of those stressors that the body's experiencing. Um, so in terms of omega-6 and omega-3 fats, this is a relatively simplified um, explanation, but when we look at the metabolic end products here, omega-6 fats lead to the production of some chemical messengers that um, help to essentially turn on inflammation or initiate the inflammatory response when we need it. Um, that concept of the onset of inflammation. And then um, several of the chemical messengers or cytokines that um, are involved at the end of the omega-3 pathway are more anti-inflammatory or inflammation resolving. Um, and so that's one of the big mechanisms that we think that um, polyunsaturated fats influence the inflammatory response. On top of that, omega-3 fats also influence um, some things in terms of cell signaling and gene expression. Um, and so it, it gets pretty complicated. And if I'm being honest, I think I still have a lot of work to do to really understand what's happening there. But essentially within that cell membrane, by making sure that we have both omega-6 and omega-3 fats, we're really able to make sure that that inflammatory response is being optimized. You know, if, if we have really high omega-6 intake, um, we may not be able to resolve that inflammation like we'd like to because we just don't have that omega-3 um, fat within that cell membrane that's able to, you know, produce those cytokines that would then resolve inflammation at the, the end of a, a stressor. Um, and again, this is, this is one theory. I think we still have a lot of work to do in this area, but it's a really interesting concept um, to consider when you're looking at athletes and you know, just how much stress they have to um, put up with as an athlete um, when it comes to strenuous training. Um, again, I don't wanna to go too far in here there are some studies out there that would suggest that specifically muscle soreness um, can be Im improved with the use of omega-3 fats. You'll see several um, products out there now that actually include omega-3 in a, a protein carbohydrate recovery shake type deal. Um, and so there's been some interesting findings there in terms of muscle recovery and soreness. Um, and we think that that would also translate to improvements in power and strength and being able to maintain that over the course of a season or a long block of training. Um, in terms of the brain, the, the big area of discussion here has been um, around neural protection specific to a collision sport like football. Um, so the big marker that we look at right now is neurofilament light. 
Um, but there are several other markers that are starting to come out in the field that I think we need to continue to explore. Um, the majority of the research here is in animal models right now. Um, but essentially what we're able to see is that, you know, if we don't have adequate con concentrations of DHA in the brain, that can have some really interesting implications for concussion recovery. And we would assume that that would also roll over into, you know, some of the subconcussive impacts that we see that just happen every day in football. Um, and so this is an area where within the sport, I think it makes sense to make sure that we're optimizing intake to make sure that we're providing um, as much support as we can for the brain, knowing that this sport obviously has some challenges around that. In terms of cardiovascular health, um, this, this Harris study and, and several other projects from um, this group are the majority of the research around cardiovascular disease and all-cause all mortality. Um, and I, I have several in the, in the, in the references that um, if you're more interested in learning about would be good to check out. The main point I wanna point out here is that that cardioprotective effect is observed between the omega-3 index and those um, markers, but it's not with a daily dose. So if we provide a supplement um, and then look at that disease risk, we're not seeing that um, relationship always boil out the same. And so that just goes to show that there are some challenges around supplements and how they're absorbed and utilized, um, which is why in some cases it makes sense to measure that omega-3 index because we get a better idea of how much of that is actually being utilized and put in the places we want to put it. Um, and then there's also an interesting paper here that looks at lipid profiles of um, some active or some players on an NFL roster. And we were able to see some improvements in their, in their lipid profile over the course of um, the trial period. Then finally, um, the last area that's talked about here is um, muscle injury or muscle protein synthesis. Um, and so a couple of papers here, the McGlory paper essentially looked at immobilizing a limb and providing fish oil during that period. And what we saw was um, during that period of inactivity, we lost some lean mass, but that lean mass was then recovered after they were remobilized um, in the fish oil group compared to the control group, which was a really interesting concept. Um, essentially where we're at in the research here is that um, it looks like omega-3 fats can potentially enhance muscle protein synthesis and optimize that skeletal muscling remodeling process um, when protein and exercise stimulus aren't optimal. Um, so specifically in some situations like potentially working with the elderly or populations that don't get adequate protein intake, um, there's some really interesting applications there. It's What's really challenging is, is we have to be careful about making assumptions about a, a, taking a dose of fish oil and immediately seeing benefits. Um, and then even taking it a step further, we're gonna see the omega-3 index move quicker than we're gonna see um, omega-3 actually really get into those um, tissues like muscle and cardiac. Um, and so if we look at this, I think from a supplement standpoint, we really won't be seeing optimal benefits until 12, the 12 to 16 week mark. And so it takes a little bit longer for us to really see those benefits, even though we're gonna see that, that rise in the omega-3 index a little bit faster. Um, so again, just kind of summarizing where we're at, optimizing the inflammatory response, showing a role in neuroprotection, impacting lipid profiles and potential 
longevity in terms of cardiovascular disease, and then finally injury nutrition. Um, these are all areas you might consider as a practitioner um, kind of applying with some of your athletes. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, the Football Performance Nutrition online course is onboarding this fall. If you're enjoying the content from Peter in this episode, the Football Performance Nutrition course is 10 modules covering everything from energy systems and training demands to macronutrients and supplementation, hydration in football, as well as nutritional periodization. The FBN course covers case studies, concussions and mental health, as well as the coach's corner on leadership, mindset, and lessons from the trenches. All this from leading experts and practitioners working in the NFL and NCAA. Use the promo code FPN2023 and you can save $100 off the cost of the course. Just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com and click on the FPN course logo. And as a special bonus, you'll also receive all 14 talks from the recent FPN Summit 2.0 this summer. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And then finally, how do we do this in team sport? Um, this was one of the most interesting concepts from the research that we did. This first column here is the percent of athletes who reported eating some of the more common fish sources. So we look at salmon, shrimp, tuna, tilapia, things that you would see at the grocery store and would be pretty common in the American diet. Um, but then if we look at how much EPA and DHA is in those food service sources, some maybe aren't as high as you would expect. Um, and so that concept of eating two fish meals per week or getting six to eight ounces of fish or seafood might not actually get the job done. Um, and so the, the big point I want you to take away here is that um, those nutrition interventions require intent. We can't just say eat more fish. That's not an effective coaching point. Um, we need to, to really be intentional about what we're recommending to an athlete um, to make sure that we're actually moving the needle and not just checking a box. Um, so with that, I want to talk a little bit about supplementation because I would assume that's something a lot of people are interested in here. Um, the two things that I look at when I'm looking for a new product are how, are, how am I going to evaluate need? How do I decide if an athlete needs the product? Um, so we've already talked about diet and blood assessment. I think that both have value and there are options for both. Um, so I, I don't think that you know, if you don't have the budget, you should just ignore this completely. There, we have food frequency questionnaires out there and ways to assess how much we're getting in the diet. And then also looking at um, just kind of their medical history. What do we know about their, um, you know, brain injury history? Have they ever had a concussion before? Do they play a lot of contact sports? Um, what, what do they look like? Get to know them as a person. And then also looking at the product itself. How are you going to choose a product? Um, looking at different lipid forms, um, and where those different lipid forms end up going and how much is metabolized and absorbed. And then, um, another really tricky one is the total omega-3 dose or the fish oil dose that you see on the front of a product versus the EPA DHA dose that you actually see on the label. And then also compliance itself. Is the athlete going to take pills? Are they going to take, or are they more likely to drink something? Um, are they going to remember to take it with food or not? Um, these are all in really important details to consider. Um, I wanted to show an example here when we look at kind of the generic brand versus more of a specialized product um, that we might find. Obviously, the first step is third-party testing. We need to make sure that 
we're covering our basis in terms of athlete safety and making sure that there's no risk for them testing positive on a drug test. But then from there, looking at specifically how much EPA and DHA is in a product. And this is really confusing for an athlete. They go to Walmart and buy, you know, this, find this product on the shelf that says there's a thousand milligrams of fish oil. Okay, Peter said I needed a thousand milligrams. This is perfect. Well, actually, then below it, it says there's only 300 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids. And then if I turn it around, there's actually only 250 milligrams of EPA and DHA per serving. So again, you could, I'd be more than happy with you using this product if it was third-party tested, but I don't have any information on the lipid form, such as an ethyl ester versus a triglyceride-based product. And we need to provide some context there to make sure that we're getting the actual EPA and DHA dose that we want. Um, and then if we look at a different product that's a little bit more specific in its formulation, we see 850 of EPA and 425 of DHA in two soft gels, which seems like a relatively easier serving size versus the, you know, maybe four or five servings we would need from this product. Um, and then lastly, just using some common sense here, what other um, ingredients do I need to account for? If they're already taking a vitamin D product um, and I only want them to get 2000 IUs, maybe I don't need them to take both. Um, maybe I can get off the vitamin D or change that dose. To, so um, that's a pretty common one, but there's some other ingredients usually out there that it's just important to keep an eye on. In terms of bioavailability, I break this down in my Gatorade Sports Science Exchange article where we kind of talk about um, some of this practical application. But the main thing I want you to take away here is that ethyl ester is um, the synthetic form of fish oil. And it's the most common in supplement form. So if you go to um, you know, Walmart or a grocery store right now, most of the products that you see are going to be ethyl ester based. Um, and they have the lowest bioavailability, which means that we're gonna get the least amount actually in the tissue and the slowest um, response in terms of omega-3 index. And that doesn't mean we can't use those products, but it means that you need to be aware of that. And you also need to optimize the environment. So making sure that we're um, taking those supplements with a fat source. And then free fatty acid, phospholipid, and triglyceride um, lipid forms are all found in different concentrations within food sources. Um, and then usually there's a combination of those within, a, within um, fish oil products. Um, you're going to see on most of these labels triglyceride based because that's the largest percentage here. But essentially these have a little bit quicker dose response. There's also some interesting applications in terms of the blood-brain barrier. It looks like we might have a hard time getting fish oil from my mouth digested and into brain tissue um, because of that blood-brain barrier, and we still need to do some research there. But um, the novel research here has started to suggest that there might be some advantages specifically to the phospholipid form in terms of incorporating that into brain tissue. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to to doing more research on that in the future. Finally, in terms of dose response, I'm just gonna point out there's an interesting study here that lays the groundwork for what we would expect in terms of how fast we would see that omega-3 index rise. Um, but there's a ton of individual variability here. Um, so if we use that 500 milligram mark we talked about already, you know, we'd probably go from about a four to a five or a six in about five months. And then if we were doing a gram, which is kind of my standard dose, we'd see a four to an eight in about five months, okay? 
Um, and I felt pretty good about that until we did some research um, here at Northwestern recently, which I'm still waiting on publishing. Um, and essentially what we found here is we used a two gram DHA dose over eight weeks um, with our, our men's and women's soccer programs and found that responses were all over the place. Um, so obviously compliance is probably a big role here, plays a big role here. Um, and we did our best to, to account for that, but there's a lot of interpersonal variability in dose response. And I think that's really important to note. Um, if we look at another study by McGlory, we also find that some of those lower omega-3 indexes, so if you have a two or a three omega-3 index, you're probably gonna have a faster, greater increase in the short term, um, just being that you know you started a little bit lower, and so that's another important part to consider. Um, just a shout out to um, our former Gatorade SNP fellow who actually helped with this project, and again another reason why that team approach is so important. Me being able to work with my sport and then also do some research things on the side is a result of you know the structure that we have here. Um, so. Here's a boiled down version of what I actually do and what, what, what we've essentially done at Northwestern. Um, so essentially we start with a screen using medical history and then evaluating diet and or blood, depending on um, what resources we have available. And then from there, we break down high risk, medium risk, or low risk. Um, what I wanna mention here is you need to make sure that you provide yourself some flexibility when you're creating a policy. Um, so making sure that you have different products available for different people, and then potentially different doses too, if you know that someone's really low or um, maybe a little bit higher need than someone else. And so I would definitely recommend making sure that you have different options for different people there. Um, I wanna take a second and go through two examples. I know I'm running short on time, so I'm gonna try to race here. Um, but I wanted to talk about when I do an omega-3 index test, um, why it's actually valuable to look at the whole profile and not just the omega-3 index itself. Um, so I would say this is a pretty standard um, entry um, omega-3 index at about four. Remember we said for most athletes, it's a four to 5% as kind of the average. Um, and this specific athlete that we're gonna use as an example, I was referred by athletic training. Um, they mentioned that the athlete had a really frequent injury history. They were a frequent flyer in the training room, constantly complained about being sore um, and had a dif had difficulty throughout the week recovering from workouts. Um, if we look at the next piece of this, the two other variables that I look at are the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio and then the arachidonic to EPA ratio, ar arachidonic acid to EPA ratio. And what what this specifically shows is um, when we look at within that cell and the balance between the primary omega-6 fat, which is arachidonic acid, and the primary omega-3 fat that um, essentially leads downstream to those stream to those cytokines that we talked about, which is EPA, um, this athlete was super high on that AA to EPA ratio, like off the chart high. And so, you know, as much as it maybe wouldn't have been a concern to take too high of an approach from a, a omega-3 supplement standpoint. When I see something like that, I know that, man, we really need to do some things to intervene here to make sure that we're putting that athlete in a better spot. And obviously there are more factors at play here, but whatever we can do to support what's happening in the athletic training room um, with the rest of that high performance team is really important. And this was something we could do. Um, and then the last metric that I look at is the trans fat index. 
um, which is actually one we're going to talk about here. Um, so this is an athlete comes in on their initial assessment, does their standard baseline test. Typically, I'll um, like to test guys when they first come in with the goal of getting them up to 8% before camp starts, um, which is, you know, when we start contact and um, we really start to see some of those some concussive impacts start to accumulate here. Um, very motivated athlete said that he ate fish pretty regularly, had a good baseline nutrition education. Um, and he also mentioned that, you know, on the weekends, he'd eat, you know, a couple of what he called cheat meals um, every weekend. Um, so if we looked at the, the ratios, those looked fine as well. He had a relatively high omega-3 index and then boom, a tra trans fat index of 1.24. So um, a little bit higher than I like to see. We're usually somewhere in the 0.5-ish range in a healthy athlete. And so, you know, after some more digging, we realized that um, some of the places he was going to eat um, for those cheat meals were places that, um, you know, mom and pop style that maybe didn't replace the fryer oil as like as frequently as we'd like to, or maybe just weren't optimal in that sense. And so we talked through, you know, trans fats and, and you know, as, as much as they're not around in the food supply very more, there are very likely some people that just really had high intakes in intakes as kids that we are still trying to work around. Um, so again, just some different variables that we can all look at. Um, to just get a better idea of what's happening in the athlete. It's given me some really interesting context in terms of diet history and, and just getting to know an athlete better when they first come in um, because I just have an, a couple extra metrics to look at. Um, I still have a lot of questions in this field as well. I think um, the big one is how do we make those recommendations even better than they are currently? Um, you know, I'm having to piecemeal a lot of this stuff together and operate in the gray like we talked about. So looking at things like body weight, race, biological sex, age, genetics, all could and probably do play a role here. Um, there's also some interesting research in um, distance runners looking at you know, mileage or training volume and that potentially having an impact on um, some of those metrics like AA, EPA and the omega-3 index as well. And then the brain, I think we're just getting started here. Um, we have some really interesting research coming up using some advanced technologies in terms of imaging and then um, some other blood biomarkers um, that we're excited to look at to really get a better idea of what exactly omega-3 does in the brain. Um, and then if 8% is the benchmark that we're going to use, what is the specific benefit for an athlete? We talked about some things already that um, could definitely provide some advantages, but I'm not sure if we actually know, will it impact in the short term, the health or performance of the athlete? And so I think that's just an important thing to consider. Um, and then finally, sustainability, um, you know, harvesting fish specifically for fish oil is probably not the best thing in terms of um, keeping the planet sustainable. And so um, looking at, you know, emerging technologies in terms of algae oil and how do we use um, just a little bit more cost efficient means to make some of these products, I think is going to be really important in the future. Um, I talk about when I first shared this research in 2019, um, really experiencing the Dunning-Kruger effect of you know, being on top of that peak of Mount Stupid. And then uh, last year, starting to read more and do more lit, um, literature review type projects, realizing that I was probably not as smart as we, I originally thought I was. Um, and then I feel like I'm finally starting to move up on that slope of enlightenment. So it, it's, it's totally fine and normal to feel a little bit overwhelmed by this research because I think it is really complicated. 
Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, continuing to do research in this area. And I'm excited to see um, what we come up with next, what we're able to measure and, and really take a look at. Um, in terms of writing a policy, uh, the Gatorade Sports Science Exchange article that I mentioned is a great place to start. Um, Michelle Rockwell and I um, worked on this a couple years ago. And so that's a great resource if you're looking at writing a policy for your department. Um, I think the big take home is, is just be really intentional about what you're trying to do. Um, you can't use ALA sources to improve the omega-3 index as efficiently as we'd like to. And so we really need to be intentional about supplementation and um, using um, fish and, and seafood sources that are gonna actually get the job done. And then finally, give yourself some flexibility. Um, make sure that you have different options for different people based on their preferences and things like that. Again, I know this was fast and furious. So if you remember nothing else today, um, the way that I educate athletes is explaining to them that omega-3 plays an important structural role in that cell, in virtually every cell in the body. And that's gonna impact the optimal function of those cells. And that's gonna influence our heart, our brain, eyes, muscle, all the different tissues that we've kind of talked about today. Um, really emphasizing EPA and DHA and making sure that we have sources um, that we're using intentionally and strategically. And then have a plan for assessment, use diet, use blood, or maybe even both if you have access to it. Um, and then lastly, we talk a lot about food first being a great approach, but I, th I think this is a specific situation in which supplements are really handy and, and might actually be worth, worth our time and money. Um, and I'm looking forward to you know, continuing to dive into that research, but I think this might be a product worth looking at in complement to a, a great balanced diet. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.